Now, one thing that never ceases to amaze me the more time I spend with myself is how selfish I can be. It is amazing our incredible tendency to be self-absorbed, isn't it? It's just, we all have this uh, tendency to slide toward thinking of everything through our own lenses. Um, I think about myself all the time. I think about, am I doing the right thing, saying the right things? Am I, you know, is this right? Is this wrong? I'm always thinking about me. Is this what I want to do? Is this going to be fun? Um, I think about how others perceive me, you know, do they think I'm okay? What's going on in my life? Um, I remember when that really, like, self-aware, what are people thinking of me, inward turn took place. Um, it was very early on. I don't even think I was in junior high yet. Um, again, I don't, I don't know if I just had, like, particularly mean people in my school, um, but I remember in, like, fifth grade, like, already being a little self-conscious about my hair and wanting it to look right and things like that and getting made fun of, and, and when, which, by the way, every time I talk about this, because that, that was just a time in my life when I kind of was t- drawn towards vanity, and hair was one of the things. But anytime I talk about this, I, you, you, there's this little subtle giggle that, like, oh, he used to have hair. Ha, 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 Yeah, what do you think? There was, like, a bald 10-year-old wandering around southern Illinois in the 90s? Of course, it's a, kids have hair. It's a normal thing. Anywho, but it started probably with my hair. But then once girls came into the picture, you know, then you got to worry about the clothes. And you got to have certain brands, you know, that everyone's wearing and styles that everyone's wearing. Got to be accepted and all of that. Um, then, again, with girls also comes in, you start being aware of how you smell. You know, so I became like the king of brushing my teeth and wearing deodorant. I also lived in the age when Axe body spray was released in the market. And nobody loves Axe body spray like a junior high kid, man. They just walk around like, it reminds me, you know, Pigpen from Peanuts, how he walks around in that dust cloud. Junior high boys walk around in a dust cloud of Axe body spray. Um, but I remember, like, making the, a conscious decision in, like, eighth grade, like, I can't, I'm not going to eat. Cool Ranch Doritos anymore because they make my breath smell bad. On the off chance that somebody might want to kiss me ever, I ain't gonna, I'm never going to have Cool Ranch Doritos again. Um, and so I just remember this like self, like, I, when I think back in my life, like this self-focused thing, it comes in really early in life. Um, and I was always the person that if like something embarrassing or slightly embarrassing happened, like let's say I was at a dance and spilled some of the punch on my shirt, could be a little spot. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so embarrassing. People are staring at me. When in reality, nobody cares. Like nobody's, like to think that the, nobody cared even 1% about me as much as I thought they did. You know, that's just kind of how your brain blows this out of proportion. And again, this isn't a me thing. This is an all humans thing. We all have this tendency towards selfishness. Um, it's natural in us from birth. It does not take very long before babies who will cry at, at the beginning just to communicate their needs. I'm hungry. I'm, my diaper's dirty. You know, I'm sleepy. That kind of stuff. It doesn't take too many months before those screams turn into tantrums where they're not just communicating their needs to you. They're demanding that you meet their needs. It happens very quickly. Uh, One place I think you see this rise up in so many people who otherwise you would think they were just nice, sweet, normal, sane, rational people is when we get into a car. People lose their minds when they get into a car. Um, I actually came across an article this week. Um, It's a 2011 article in Psychology Today that said, the number one reason we get so angry when we're driving is what's called goal blocking, meaning that every time we get into a car, we have a goal. We want to get to a certain place, 
Um, we want to get there in a certain amount of time, and we have a certain route that we we're probably going to take, right? And then what happens is, well-meaning, other normal people will block your goal, and they will keep you from getting, usually it's not where you want to go, it's almost always how quickly you wanted to get there, which most of us is as quickly as possible. As we, we think, I'm going to spend as little time in this car that I paid so much money for as I possibly can. It's got leather, heat, leather seats, heated seats, heated steering wheel, and I want to be in this thing as little as possible, so I'm going to drive as crazily as I can everywhere I want to go. And so what that means is we get most angry in a car, not because people are doing things that are dangerous or bad, or not because they're trying to ruin your day, but because they just took the turn that you wanted to turn. They got in front of you, and they were going a little slower than you wanted them to go. They were going five miles an hour over the speed limit instead of 10 miles an hour over the speed limit, and they're a moron for that, and what is wrong with these people? And, you, and, and we get so upset because simply because you had a picture of the way the world was supposed to work for you, and it didn't work out that way. And this is the normal kind of behavior, unfortunately, for all of us. We look at the world as if it's a movie, and we're the main character. And everybody else is supporting characters. And everybody else's job in the world is to support my goals, my dreams, my ambitions, my idea of how every day should go. And here's the thing that's, that's really upsetting, is as I go through my day as the main character, you people all make the mistake of assuming you're the main character. The audacity of you. Clearly this is all about me. Clearly the world revolves around me, and you exist to give me what I want. You see, when we put it that way, it sounds utterly ridiculous, but yet it's so natural for us to just to go through life thinking everything is about me. Um, one thing that I have a tendency with is for years, I feel like every time I call when I have like a tech support issue and I call to get help, the overwhelming majority of the time, I'll talk to this tech support person, and the response is, we've never had this problem before. We don't know what to do about it. Good luck. And over the years, with my selfish perspective, in the moments when I've been most frustrated, I'm like, this is a prank. Apple and Google and Microsoft have banded together to ruin my life. Now, when I'm normal and sane, that sounds ridiculous, that these multi-billion dollar corporations would care even a little bit about me to put enough energy and time into ruining a single day of my life, right? They don't care. But in that moment, when nothing's working and things aren't going my way, it seems like a perfectly rational explanation for why the world is not working the way I want it to work. And then this selfishness really can cause a different kind of problems in Kind of the places like where we live, small towns, small communities, small churches, because everybody knows everybody. We know names of more people than we typically would if we lived in a city or something like that, right? Because what happens is we will uh, have these normal everyday events where someone will do something that hurts our feelings. And because we look at the world through this very personal, me-first lens, we get very offended we stew about it. We assume that they tried to hurt us. They did this on purpose. Um, maybe you have a friend who didn't ask you to be in their wedding, not even as a cake cutter or a pamphlet hander out or none of that. And you thought, I thought we were closer than that. They didn't put me. You got the invitation, sure, but you thought you were close and you'd have a special job to do. Uh, maybe you have a business and somebody you know bought what you sell, but not from you. 
They went to somebody else. How could they do that? They know that I, this is what I deal in. How could they go somewhere else? And you take it personally. They are doing this against me. Maybe there's a, a, a role that you fill in your community or a volunteer position at the school with your kids, and it's kind of become your thing. Maybe it's a, at, a family, at your family get-togethers. There's always like the one dish that's yours to bring, and it's, you, and it's a special thing, and you're proud of your recipe, and you're proud of bringing it. And then all of a sudden, one year, somebody's in your spot. And you think, oh, they know that that's what I, I'm always the one that does that. How could, say, how could they take my spot? They must think I'm terrible. They must think I don't, oh, how dare they? And we, we have all these kinds of different situations where we, we get so offended and we get hurt by what other people have done and we think it's so intentional and we stew and we fret and we get angry and we hold grudges. And what's really typically going on and what I have learned after many, many years of taking a lot of stuff personally is that when somebody does something that hurts your feelings, 99% of the time, they were not trying to hurt your feelings. Chances are, they weren't even thinking about you because you're not the main character of their story. They were just going about their life, doing what they thought would be ha- make them happy. They didn't buy the thing at your store because it was sold cheaper somewhere else. It wasn't a personal thing against you. They brought that dish because they found a new recipe. They weren't trying to push you out and, you know, say, your time's done, Grandma. This is my place, my casserole time. They weren't trying to do that. They weren't trying to take your volunteer spot because they thought you were doing a bad job. They just thought, I think I might be good at that. That would be fun. It's very rarely, the things we take personally are very rarely things that we should take personally. But we do so, and we have all this drama and upheaval and frustration and pain in our lives because we're too busy thinking the world revolves around us. And in moments like that, we don't realize how much we are our own worst enemy because we're too busy thinking all the problems are out there. Because the other thing, when the, when the world revolves around you and you're the main character of the story, you're not the villain of the story, right? You're the hero, You can't do anything wrong. You never break the rules. You're always the one who's in the right. Everybody else is the one in the wrong. But yet this inward way, this perspective, this inward selfish perspective that we're all naturally drawn to, it makes us prisoners of our own lives, prisoners of this life of pain and drama and frustration and being anxious and upset about so many things that we don't need to be really that upset about. And it doesn't help that we live in a world that plays on our desire to be selfish, Our whole world, every commercial, everything. You do you, you follow your heart, you find the purest expression of your dreams, and you just chase after what you want. Our world tells us to do this. And so we go out and we spend six days of the week uh, getting told, yeah, everything you want, there's nothing wrong with you doing only what you want. And I don't think that that leads to human flourishing, and it definitely doesn't lead us to the path that God wants us to walk down. And so we live in a prison of our own making. Believing the lie that everything in life should go the way I want. And the number one problem with life is that things don't go as I wish. Now, we are firmly in the middle of a series where we are talking about spiritual formation, about practices that form us into being the kind of people that God wants us to be. Because you and I are like wet clay. We are very moldable, very shapeable, and everything we do all day long shapes us and molds us and and forms us in certain ways. And unfortunately, through our sinfulness and our selfishness, we have become deformed. We are not the kind of humans that God made us to be. We are like humans, human-ish, but we've been shaped and formed in ways that lead us away from being the fullest versions of humans that God wanted us to be. 
And so everything has, you know, made its imprint on us. And what spiritual practices are for is they make space and time in our lives for the Holy Spirit to come in and to reshape us into the beautiful image that God made us to live in. And so we've been talking about several of these different ones. Um, Well, today we're going to talk about the spiritual practice that helps us break free from our obsession with ourselves, to break free from our need for everything to go our way, for to break free from so much of the frustration that we feel all the time, that people have slighted us and offended us, and it's the practice of self-denial. Now, unfortunately, we're bad at this. There's, I mean, of all the ones I've, I've talked about, like there's been one like uh, Sabbath, and everyone's like, I ain't taking a day off, I ain't got time for that. Like I, I got that vibe, okay? Um, prayer, I don't know, maybe I will, kind of indifferent about this one. This one, though, people are just like, uh, I, don't, I don't know. Like I don't, I don't say no to, my, we don't say no to ourselves about anything. We eat where we want, we get mad. Okay, we, I don't know if you, historically speaking, in the whole span of human history, You know what most people have done for food? They got out of their houses and they went and they hunted for it. Like, what am I having for lunch today? I don't know. I hope I can go kill something. Hope I'm faster than a rabbit. Hope I'm fast. You know, and now what we have, we live in this luxurious time where we drive in our cars. We don't even have to burn calories walking anywhere. We drive in our cars. We sitting down. We get to sit down while our cars take us where we need to go. And by the way, we're on the cusp of our cars literally taking us where we want to go. We don't have to think or drive. We just say, McDonald's, and it'll just drive us to McDonald's, right? And then we sit there and we say, I would like a burger, but no onions, please. And we don't have to kill anything. We don't have to get covered in blood. We don't have to put sweat, break a sweat for it. And then we get around and they're like, they put onions on it. Ooh! Like, and we, like, we get so outraged by these things, right? Because, and so self-denial is not even on our radar, even a little bit. It is so far from a concept that we take part in. Um, the only examples we have of self-denial in our culture are painful ones that don't lead us to think of freedom and life and flourishing. They make us think of pain and suffering and failure, like diets. You're sitting there at work, and everybody's eating something good they brought or something they ordered in, and you're sitting there eating your dry lettuce. Like, this is dumb. Like, this is, why am I doing and then And then you do that for a few days, and... You can't keep up with it, obviously, because you're not a rabbit, and so you eat real good food, and then you don't lose any weight, and you suffered for no reason. And so we think, self-denial, boo, I don't want anything to do with that. Um, Sometimes it can happen um, when we try to be smart financially, and we say no to ourselves, I want these nicer cars, and I want these things, but no, I'm going to save money, and I'm going to invest in my retirement. And then we have a crazy, bad financial year, and you look at all that hard-earned money that you saved to be smart and wise, and you just see your accounts draining day day by day as the markets go lower and lower. And you think, I was self-denial, and that didn't even work out for me that well. Um, another um, unfortunate example for the, uh, of self-denial gone poorly um, comes from the church. I, the church in the 90, or 80s and 90s and 2000s became very hyper-focused on the call in youth groups for sexual purity. And inadvertently, the message in almost every youth group was, if you Given to any of those urges, God will be mad at you and not like you, and he will hate you, and you should feel bad and guilty and shameful and horrible. 
And there was a lot of it was well-meaning parents just scared for their kids and trying to do the right thing. But the way it was so hyper-focused and handled, there were so many people that walked away from church just because of the guilt and the shame they couldn't carry that weight anymore. And we could go into that more another day. But the idea that we just don't have a lot of good examples of what self-denial means. And we, don't have, we definitely don't have any good examples of, of self-denial leading to joy and flourishing and freedom. And that's exactly what this is meant to do for us. Um, the goal of self-denial is ultimately freedom from yourself. It's freedom to get over you, to not live your whole life worried about you, how you look. Is this going to go your way? Is everything? It gives you the freedom to accept life as it comes at you, to accept people with all their bumps and warts and mistakes and and chaos and not look at every person as a supporting role to give you what you want. You can let people be the wonderful creations of God that they are. There is great freedom when you can get past yourself. You can get free from needing everyone else to cater to your whims. Freedom from having to get the last word in in every disagreement. Freedom to, from, being a, from always having to look the best, uh, be the best, come across as the smartest person in every conversation. Freedom from needing a life that will go your way or you fall apart because you don't know how to handle anything else. Freedom from the anger of feeling wronged every time somebody driving slightly slower than you pulls over and gets in front of you driving down the road. And when you are not hung up on yourself, you can love God the way you're supposed to, and you can love other people the way that you're supposed to. And that's what Jesus says is our greatest command. We're supposed to love our, the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. We can actually do those things, but we've got to get over our love of self first, our obsession with self Now, one of the strongest, most confrontational statements Jesus ever made in his whole ministry was on self-denial. And it's hard for us to hear even now because Jesus talks as if self-denial is making the choice between life and death. And there's three of the Gospels, the biographies about Jesus that start our New Testament that talk about this. Um, I'm going to read the uh, version in Mark's Gospel. So we'll be in Mark chapter 8. Mark 8, if you want to follow along on the screen, that's fine. If you've got a Bible you want to use, Bible app, um, that's good as well. Okay, Mark chapter 8. And you probably have heard this before. And calling the crowd to himself with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We're going to keep reading a little bit more, so if you haven't flipped there yet, you can... Mark your page and we'll come back. But Jesus plainly, clearly states that if you want to trust him with your life, you want to be his follower, somebody who learns from him and tries to model your life on him, it's going to take you denying yourself. You have to deny yourself. Being a Christian means denying yourself, saying no to yourself. Mark says uh, that the reason Jesus gets into this topic is because of another weird encounter that he had with one of his closest friends, a guy named Peter. So Jesus has his 12 disciples. These were the closest guys, kind of his inner circle. And he's talking just to them. And there's a crowd of other people nearby who came to hear Jesus. But he's talking just to his 12 and he's telling them, you know, it's getting pretty close. We're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And Peter says, nuh-uh. And Peter says, Jesus, you better stop talking like that. In fact, it says that Peter rebuked Jesus, which that's the word in the, in the, the New Testament Gospels for when um, 
they would go around and cast out demons. They would rebuke the demon, rebuke the evil to get out of a person. This is Peter rebuking the evil ideas that Jesus has about him dying. And it's, I mean, again, you ever, if you've ever been around a kid that like the first time they ever talk back to their mom and you're like, oh no, they're going to die. Like, like it's, if, I feel like it's kind of one of those moments like, he just talked back to Jesus. You don't talk back to Jesus. And so he, he tells Jesus, you need to stop talking like this about you dying right now. Because Peter had the same kind of idea that all of the Jewish people had when, they, when it came to the, the idea of a Savior and Messiah coming into the, their society. This was a long-standing belief that had kind of taken on a life of its own. And they had kind of started to shape the idea of this coming Savior in their own image according to the ideas of the kind of Savior they wanted. The idea that the Jewish people in the first century had was that the Savior would come and he would be a strong conqueror. And he would kind of kick the Romans out and, and make Israel an independent nation again. And this guy would be their mighty king and he would live in a mighty palace and he would have a mighty army and he would rule over the temple and he would create this wonderful nation where God came and lived with his people. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that was the idea. And so Peter's idea is thinking, Jesus, he's on his way to the top of the power structure and he's taking us with him. Abby, you want to give me some water? Apparently I'm going to die. <clears throat> And so he thinks Jesus is going to the top of fame, of power, of authority, and we're going to be like his right-hand men. And so he has this idea that, like, the future is all good. The future's coming up all Pete. It's going to be great for me. And then Jesus says, that's not the future. That's your idea. The real future is I'm going to die for the sins of mankind. And Peter can't stand that because that bursts his little bubble. And so Jesus, when Peter says, you need to stop talking like this. Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan, for you are thinking with the thoughts of man, not with the thoughts of God. And that's when Jesus turns and he says, okay, let's make this a little more clear. And he says, come on, guys. Okay, everybody listen up. And he turns to the crowd and he gets his disciples and his crowd together. And he says, okay, everybody listen up. If you want to follow me, let me just make it very, very clear. It's going to mean denying your plans for the future, your hopes, your dreams, your desires for yourselves. You are going to have to give up a lot in order to follow me. And I can't think of anything that is more of a crowd killer than something like that. But Jesus goes ahead and he makes it a little bit more strong because he says not only do you have to deny yourself, but he says you've got to take up your cross. Thank you so much. I very much appreciate it. Oh, yeah, that's the stuff. I better put it over here so I don't kick it. But if I'm anything like my son, I'll find a way. <clears throat> um, so he doesn't just say deny yourself. He says you've got to take up your cross, which we kind of miss a little bit because we know the story of Jesus' crucifixion. We've heard it. We've read it. We've done the Easter stuff. Like, we get that part of the story. But in the first century, they didn't just hear stories about crucifixion. It was a daily, visible horror for these people. They saw criminals crucified all the time. They heard the screams. They probably smelled the bodies, smelled the blood. They saw men who were criminals hanging on crosses, suffering to breathe until they wasted away after a few days baking in the sun. And so Jesus takes this this call of self-denial, and he cranks it up to 11 and says, not only is this self-denial, this is more like self-death. And again, if you, if you thought, I got too many people in this crowd, I need to run some out, that's a good way to do it. 
I mean, it'd almost be like if I was like, hey, guys, stick around after church. I got a thousand slide presentation on earthworms. Like this building would be clear out so fast after church was over. But there's this thing, though, where Jesus is calling them to self-death. And and he was known to speak in very exaggerated terms. But I don't necessarily even want to lessen what he's saying here because some of the people that heard this, they would go on and be crucified for following him. In a very real way, though, he is saying that we need to dethrone ourselves from being the main character in our hearts and replace it with him to let Jesus be the main character, the one that we follow, the one whose, whose desires and dreams that we chase after, not our own. And that means we've got to, in a sense, in many ways, die to ourselves. And there's a lot of ways. When we start working through this process of self-denial, it will feel like a death because dreams are hard to let go of. Your desire for, to have a future where everyone's healthy and, and everyone's got money and everybody's well-fed and everyone's got all the clothes they need, that future that we have in our mind, it's hard to let go of and to open yourself up and say, okay, God, wherever you want to take me, that is a pretty scary way to live and to let move, or at least at first, and to move forward. And so we need to get out of the way and let Christ fill the spot in our hearts where he becomes the object of our affection so that we no longer live to satisfy our desires, but his. And then Jesus goes on to show us why it's so dangerous for us to live for ourselves. And it's more than just the, we get angry when we drive and we get, take things personally when we shouldn't take things personally. He's like, it's, it's actually more serious than that. He goes on in verse 35. He says, For whosoever, or for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? You see, what we think will make us live the best life, those are the things we chase. And those are the things we plan our lives around, you know, the success, the prosperity, the security, the health, the accomplishments, right? And so we build our dreams and our pictures and our goals all towards capturing those things. And Jesus says, that's not the secret to flourishing. Sorry. He's like, you've got it entirely backwards. The the secret to flourishing is not living for yourself, but dying to yourself. That our desires, because we've been deformed, our desires are lying to us. You ever caught your desires lying to you? You ever tried to um, deceive yourself into thinking something was a good idea when part of you knew it was a bad idea? Like some of you are like, yeah, I had a marriage like that. That's why I had my, that's what my first divorce was like. I knew he was bad. Everyone told me he was bad, but I just thought he, just thought he was so cute and his hair was long and flowy and I said, okay. You know, like, like that's how, like we, we are masters at self-deception. Our hearts are deceitful above all else. And so this is a lie that we believe. The secret to flourishing is to get everything you've ever wanted. I love it when, I don't, it's, it's kind of sad, I shouldn't say I love it, but I appreciate it when you find a celebrity who in, gets a little too honest in an interview and tells you, like, I got it all and I'm miserable, and all the things that we chase. Um, I think it was Jim Carrey who said, I wish everybody could have all the money and all the success and get every dream they've ever wanted so they could learn it doesn't bring you happiness. Um, Madonna once said that what keeps her working is the fear that the last thing that she accomplished, her last Grammy, her last song that was top of the charts, that that it's not going to be enough. And so she has to keep going and getting more and more and more and more and more. And so it's, it's not the way to work. And if we pay attention, 
we know that and we see that, but we deceive ourselves into thinking, man, if we can just get it all, we'll be, we'll be happy. If we, can comp- if we can live for us, we'll be happy. And Jesus says, no, that's a lie, and I have something better for you. Chasing our own happiness will not lead us closer to joy. It, it, it will give us, at best, intermittent moments of happiness. At worst, it'll bring us misery. But either way, what it will do is it will ultimately cause us to miss the true source of joy and human flourishing, which is Jesus himself. And you living for you will not lead you any closer to Jesus. It will not lead you to the eternal life, the hope, the better life that he wants for you. In fact, it will only lead you to be more separated from him. Because you can spend your whole life on yourself, be as successful as you've ever wanted, always be healthy, achieve every goal you've ever made, live in a perfect house, have a perfect schedule, have the physique of your dreams have the perfect face care regimen so that you look 10 years younger, 20 years younger than your actual age your whole life. You can have all of that stuff and yet miss out on the life Christ has for you. You can miss out on the restored eternal life that Jesus died to help us gain entrance into and a life that has security and peace and contentment and more joy than we've ever known or can get through everything we gain on this world. And on top of all that, we gain the freedom of ourselves so that we discover that there's more to this life even when we get past looking in the mirror. So how do we practice self-denial? Um, the answer is through submission. Submission, which is, if you ask a lot of people, submit is like a dirty word in the Bible because there's a few places that it gets misused and it talks about being submissive. But the whole, if you pay attention to what Jesus says the whole time through, his whole Goal is to help us to be people who are constantly submitting to those around us. We submit to and serve other people. He says, I came not to uh, be served, but to serve, and I want you guys to follow in my footsteps. He said that after he washed his disciples' dirty, nasty, stinky feet, even the feet of the man who would lead to him being killed. Uh, Richard Foster wrote a uh, probably the 20th century is one of the best books for spiritual formation. Um, and in, the, in one chapter, he gives seven ways that we can submit ourselves every day. So I want to give these quickly tw- seven ways that we can submit ourselves every day. Um, one, we submit to God. You wake up and you pray, God, this day's yours, not mine. I'm not living for myself. I want to serve you, and I want to do what you want to do with my days and my time. So you submit to God. You submit to Scripture. When we come to church, or maybe you read Scripture in your life, uh, and you read something that maybe you would notice, you know, I don't live my life that way. We submit to the truth of Scripture and say, I don't want to do this, because that happens, right? You, see, you know, when Jesus tells us to be more generous and kind, and that whole horrible nonsense about loving your enemies, ugh, I mean, who wants to do that, right? And he says, love your enemies. And so we say, I don't want to do that, but I know that is a better way to live. I know that is the key, it unlocks a key to being more like Jesus. And so we submit ourselves to the truth of Scripture and to obey it. We submit to our families, It's a beautiful thing when you have a household full of people who are not selfishly all living for themselves, but are living to make the lives of their family better. We submit to our neighbors. Jesus calls us to serve those that we bump into every day. And neighbors doesn't just mean the house next to yours. Because if that was true, then growing up, I didn't have any neighbors, and I didn't have to serve anybody. Um, So, but... 
You know, that's not what he means. Your neighbor is the people that you bump into. It's a, it is the person who lives next to you, door to you. It's the person who checks out your stuff at the grocery store. It's that person in line in front of you in the pickup line at school. Those are our neighbors. And we must be willing to be interrupted and inconvenienced to have our plans derailed by opportunities to serve and care for those people in our lives. We also submit to our church. We look for ways when we come together to care for one another and love one another. And again, be interrupted. We take a couple out for lunch that we don't know very well just so we can get to know them more. We, we put ourselves in places uh, to do um, maybe a chore that somebody can't do. Maybe it's not a chore that you thought, I wanted to do that today, but somebody mentioned that they were having trouble with something at their house. I'll come take care of that. I'll come take a look at it. Um, maybe you volunteer for a position somewhere in the church that doesn't receive a lot of notoriety or maybe one that gets to be avoided sometimes. So we serve our church. Uh, we submit to the broken and despised. Jesus' half-brother James uh, tells us that the, the best version of our faith is one that drives us to take care of those nobody else is taking care of. In the first century, the culture was widows and orphans. He's like, that's the people you need to take care of because nobody else was taking care of those people. And historically, through the centuries, the church has been an amazing beacon of light running into dark places, caring for people everyone else was ignoring. Um, when people were fleeing um, communities and towns um, with the Black Plague, in the, whenever that was happening, I didn't, I'm not super up on my history numbers there, um, but Christians were running in to care for the sick, many of them dying themselves because they thought humans had enough dignity being made in the image of God that they deserved to be cared for and loved as they suffered. Humans, Christians have always done that, cared for the broken, the despised, and the ignored. And then finally, we submit just to the world. We understand that we're a part of something bigger and that we need to be um, wise, responsible members of society. And that just because one problem in society doesn't particularly affect you, that doesn't mean you get to ignore it. No, it's a big, if, it's, if there's people suffering, people suffering from poverty or whatever, racial, indifferent, uh, uh, racial uh, discrimination, then there's, those are places that we need to care about and, and engage with because we are citizens of the world. We might not want to do those things. We might have a natural desire to do those things, but we need to care. We need to be people who live our lives and give our lives for others in big ways and in small ways. Sometimes you can exercise this if you're with a group of people and someone's like, let's order pizza. And, they, and three people shout out some topping you hate and you just, you don't whine about it. You don't complain about it. You don't say, but I don't like mushrooms. You just pick them off quietly and eat the pizza and carry on. You don't make a big deal. You don't draw the attention to you. You just deny what you want and you carry on with life. You can do this in so many different ways, this practice of self-denial. So here's my challenge for you this week is to submit yourself by serving someone in secret. Now, I put in secret on there because you can... You can turn this whole thing upside down and make it about you still because you can take the hardest jobs. You can um, be the biggest servant for either self-pity and to be the martyr. Oh, nobody does this hard work like me. Nobody's, this, nobody's serving like me. Nobody's giving away like me. Boy, if only anybody else would show up and help me. Woe is me. I mean, you can, you can take this idea of serving and still turn it in and make yourself the main character of the story. And so we've got to be a little bit wise about that and still make it 
genuine, to try to, again, get out of our own way so that we can truly become the people that can love God and love others without tripping over ourselves every step of the way. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for our time together. We're grateful that we can have this moment to talk about saying no to ourselves. We never say no to ourselves, and it is a good practice for us. And so I just pray, Father, that you would help us to get into the habit of self-denial, that we would look at life as, as opportunities to get out of our own way and to love you the way you deserve to be loved and to love others the way you've called us to love them, to love others the way you love them with generosity and grace and compassion. So give us eyes, Father, as we leave here today to start being aware of our selfishness, to start being aware of the times when we make it about ourselves. And it is going to be hard to say no. It's hard to go through self-denial. It's hard to, to, to die to ourselves. Um, but that's where freedom is found. On the other side of that hard work, Father, you, you start loosening the grips on our, on our heart of needing to have things our own way. And so when life is difficult or, or bad, we can just accept it and move on and carry on with life and not be upset when decisions go the wrong way, but we can have true freedom to live and, and continue to honor and, and glorify you all the way. So Father, help us to do that so that we can be the kind of people you want us to be, be formed into the image of Jesus, not deformed by our own selfishness. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.